0: Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, I'm really happy to have Spencer Clavin back on on the podcast uh, to talk about one of the subjects that I think he has, um, as with so many subjects, uh, has has really made me think about, which is morality and art and what relationship they might have to one another. But before we get to that, um, Spencer is an editor with Claremont Institute and with The American Mind. Um, He has a wonderful book, uh, How to Save the West. Um, that I, we had him on about a year and a half ago when that came out, but he has not been resting since that came out. I still recommend that book. He has a new one coming out, light of the mind, light of the world. Um, and uh, he hosts Young Heretics. He's just all over the place. Um, he's on the American Mind podcast frequently. Uh, and he invented an entire language, uh, <laughs> from what I understand. So in the meantime, he has invented an entire language for one of Daily Wire's upcoming series. So he's like, from scratch, token style uh, invented an entire language. So uh, he, he really is sort of the best, I think, of a resurgent idea of what scholarship and education really can be. So, Spencer, welcome. Welcome back to High Noon.
1: Oh, thank you, Inez. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's always great to see you. And even though it feels like a year and a half ago that we talked about How to Save the West, I feel like it was February that that book came out. So it's like, really it feels as if it's been forever. But <laughs> <This has laughs> here a we are. This
0: year then. Okay, so you're even more prolific than I gave you credit for, which is you're already I mean... <laughs> halfway through a new book uh, when your, your old book came out this year. Um, so I really wanted to discuss this, this topic of art and morality. You did a fantastic podcast over at Young Heretics about it, where you take as sort of, um, the example that you discuss, picture of Dorian Gray, um, and, and I think, uh, compassionately discuss that. And we'll get to some of that, those, uh, the, the balance that you're, you're, uh, trying to strike between competing values. But, um, I want to lay out what this conversation is not going to be for listeners, because I think we just agree on all of this stuff. We agree that the censorship of art either explicitly um, or implicitly by just simply putting so many um, true and useful ideas outside of the Overton window uh, has been terrible for art hmm. and for our culture. Um, so this is you know, neither one of us is defending woke censorship or anything of the kind. Um, I-, I wanted to talk to the or talk about the deeper, tension here? Because I think there is one, and you you sort of pointed to it um, in your podcast about this. But uh, can, I guess, Just let's just start big. Can beauty and beautiful art exist without morality?
1: Yeah. I'm glad you started there because, as you say, I think that you and I, and probably a lot of listeners, are on broadly the same page here. We don't want a new Hayes office. We don't want a kind of woke morality imposed onto art. Even if we did think it was a good thing for the government to somehow to intervene in, you know, via obscenity law or something, the current government that we have now would be very likely, I think to layer on like a really twisted and contorted morality onto art. So it's probably better for us to think about as you know, I like to flatter us as like sane people. What do we want out of our art and what's a good way to get it? And I think that the answer or the question that you raise is, is really kind of the right one to start with, which is, is there such a thing as like maybe morally liberated art or beauty without any responsibility to, the kind of moral truths, or even maybe if you think about an example like Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita, is there such a thing as morally ugly art that is nevertheless beautiful in some other way and and by some other means? And I suspect that the answer to this is yes, up to a point. I think that we would probably be kidding ourselves if we didn't acknowledge that it's possible to make really ugly and contorted and perverse moral worldviews look good. You know, I mean, I, I think sometimes about the big conservative debate that was kicked up over uh WAP, the Cardi B song. And uh, what occurs to me about that song is that, that is a really skillful and highly produced presentation of a way of thinking about your body and about sex that's super degrading. And what conservatives were reacting to was the content. What most people I think react to is the skill involved. And and I think conservatives can be kind of deaf and blind to that skill. Um, So one of my kind of critiques, I guess, of people broadly speaking on our side who want to see art represent a kind of more edifying attitude or worldview is a failure to acknowledge the fact that you know people who are very skilled and talented can make at least aesthetically sort of superficially aesthetically pleasing stuff that is attached to really unpleasant Ideas and views. I mean, when people freak out about Lil Nas X, typically conservatives jump to like, "This is a bad song. This doesn't work. This isn't good." And I think there's there's a truth to that somewhere, but it's skipping over the complexity and the tension that you allude to, which is that there's also like a catchy hook here. There's also good lyrics. There's also like you know somebody that kind of knows how to execute. And and I think that probably. A more nuanced approach to this would say it is possible to marshal the aesthetic resources of, you know, rhythm, sound, all the rudiments of the kind of raw materials of art. It's possible to to marshal the almost physical pleasure of those things in service of a kind of ugly or degraded or or uh, you know degrading set of attitudes. And what you're doing when you do that is is not making. Ugly art, so much as lying. You're telling an untruth about what is actually the case in the world, which is that you know, moral ways of living, or at least ways of living that acknowledge moral reality, are actually, in the end, conducive to like a kind of corruption and decay and and ugliness. So I think a lot of times when people talk about this stuff they they neglect to sort of acknowledge that yeah there is a real pleasure to well constructed formally well constructed works of art even if they get something across that you don't like or don't endorse but when you marry aesthetic beauty with kind of moral ugliness you are fundamentally doing something corrosive and and dishonest i think that's kind of a, maybe the the better way to to make this argument
0: interesting cuz i mean I, I feel like uh, one of the things that is was background societal moral sort of dicta, right, um, mm-hmm. or dictum rather. But when I was growing up, is sort of the after school special morality that oh, things are not as they seem. And mm-hmm. in recent years, so in other words, you know the <laughs> the ugly cheerleader. Is, I mean, the beautiful cheerleader is mean. The the like handsome Chad is is a bully. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that is sort of the, the way of setting up this kind of moral universe where, Oh, you know, don't judge a book by a cut by its cover. There is, um, you know, there's this disconnect between outward appearance, aesthetics, beauty, and what's really inside. Mm. Um, and I, I, in recent years, I have to say like, I've, I've come to maybe question that and in, in, uh, what is the relationship between, um, aesthetics and morality, right? Or, or forget about morality for a moment, truth, right? That, is it possible really to um, make something, and, and I, again, these are questions I don't really have an answer to. Um, the the how, how aesthetically seductive, there's, there's these two competing ideas, and I, I'm not being clear because I'm not clear about it in my own head. There's these mm-hmm. two competing ideas. One, I think we might've been overstating the case of there being no connection between beauty and truth, right? Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, it is also obviously true that evil can be seductive. And Mm -hmm. in fact, there's this sort of cartoonish, um, especially in, you know whatever <laughs> the word i always hear is cape shit but like yeah. in, in a lot of the marvel universe kind of stuff right where the um, bad guy is very predictable very evil very like obvious like the you know um and even in old fairy tales right this this uh the old woman who's who's ugly who's luring the children into her <laughs> um into her house um on the other hand like i i think especially the t- history of the 20th century like evil can be incredibly seductive and beautiful and i have, you know, a litany of historical examples of that. so how how should we think about the relationship between aesthetics and let's just start with truth before we even move to morality.
1: yeah, right. well, it's a really naughty problem and i think you're absolutely right to identify a certain like 90s into early 2000s trend that i would almost think of as like the Shrek trend, right? It's it's the story that repeatedly drives home this idea that there's inner beauty and outer beauty, and the two are often misaligned in the world that we actually exist in. And all of this is obviously true. And not only that, it's also an ancient strain of thought and storytelling. I mean, DreamWorks did not invent this idea. It's the point of the princess and the frog. I would say even that You know, like Snow White and and Sleeping Beauty sort of contain this comparison between, you know, young, beautiful, outward innocence that does correspond to some inward loveliness or true beauty and then kind of old, decrepit, but but apparently beautiful, you know, the, the queen that can sort of put on a beautiful face, but inside her heart is corrupt and eventually that Gets revealed. So, this is like an acknowledged truth and a complexity of human life, and something that art itself is actually uniquely capable of dealing with. But maybe one way of starting to address these issues is to think about this kind of threefold categorization that we get from the ancient world of, the, of sort of three things that art can do and, and depictions can do. And these three things, I think, are definitely distinct. Like one of the problems we're talking about here is that you can do each one of these without doing the others, or you can do them, you know, sort of, you can put them at, at, at contrast to each other. But, you know, when Cicero talks about rhetoric, he says that it should move, delight, and instruct. And so you want to pleasure, you know, make people experience pleasure when they listen to you. They You want, you want them to enjoy it. You want them to learn something and you want them to feel something. And in the best possible scenario, I think Cicero would say, like, not only should a speech or a work of art do all of those things, it should do each one by doing the others. So it should teach you by showing you the beauty of something, which in turn gives you pleasure and delight and that delight is a form of emotion which can kind of help carry you emotionally through the peace and all, and all of that. Um we're talking about situations in which like those things don't align or or don't match up and especially we're talking about the conflict between pleasure and instruction, right? But, or between the, the truth the kind of a a fundamental truth of a story or an idea versus the like visual or sensory delight that we might get from hearing the words from seeing the the colors from all the stuff that art does for us like aesthetically and i suspect that what we are grappling with is a, a sort of literalism that has set in where either we have to say you know ugliness and outward outward beauty and inward beauty have no connection to one another or they have kind of a direct one-to-one connection to one another, which is the reaction that you will see a lot of times on the vitalist right and that does reach back into this sort of Greek, idea of the kalokagathos, the beautiful and the good kind of united in one outward beauty being a reflection of some kind of inward discipline or something like that. We know that those things are true, but that there's also kind of a disconnect. And I would suggest that there is actually unique to each work of art and and in some sense, always sort of self-contained within each work of art. There is an implicit language connecting the aesthetic Forms that you're being confronted with, to the inward truth that is being conveyed. And if that language didn't exist, there there wouldn't be a work of art. There would be no reason to be to be doing art. And so, really, the question is, as viewers and as critics, like, what is that language? How does translation between these two things work? And and do we think that what's being gotten across or the connections that are being made there are are valid, or is there something kind of wrong and 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 superficial about them because if it's the case that art is kind of making a false connection between aesthetics aesthetic beauty and and, and inward beauty however that translation is being made then the pleasure we take in the art is ultimately going to be kind of superficial like we we all know that art can make us feel a kind of sensory pleasure in the same way that tasting food makes us feel feel pleasure or seeing, you know, a a pretty array of colors makes us feel pleasure. But we also know, I think that that doesn't quite qualify it as art. And the deeper that aesthetic good reaches into some kind of intangible, supersensory reality, the more profound and, and successful the work of art is and in some sense maybe like good art is just all about like making that connection as deeply as possible and and maybe this is why keats's urn says beauty is truth truth beauty and these things are are connected we we know in some sense that they they can be at odds with one another but i also think that what that means is that the the beauty of the work of art really is like quote unquote only skin deep you know it kind of it creates this um in, in, like immediate gratification that doesn't actually qualify as like artistic success.
0: I wonder if what you're really driving at is a distinction between order and morality it, it, in not that those are like uh, I would say one is necessary for the other, but I can imagine all kinds of things that have order that are not moral, right? Um, yeah. and maybe this is the connection with the vitalist writer or, or whatever. Um, is I can imagine, I mean, this Apollonian idea of pulling order out of nature or nature itself having a type of order. It's hard for me to imagine beauty without order at all, which I think especially in music becomes really obvious with the, um, the initial like sort of movement to atonal and then like the ridiculous pieces, like four minutes and 33 seconds where it's just nothing um, hmm. for four minutes yeah. and 33 seconds, right? Um, I think you can see really clearly in music the necessity for order in order to pull out beauty. And, and even an order that subverts, you know, certain um, expected or boring or dull types of order, right? But there still is a type of order being pulled out of chaos. And I have a hard time imagining anything that I would consider beautiful or a serious work of art that doesn't have some type of order to it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that is a good order, right? We can think about all the ways in which human beings uh, have ordered their societies and we need some standard by which to judge like all of these quote unquote worked by the Burkean sense, right? Of the civilizations were wise sort of thing. Um, Hmm. We can imagine, oh, you know, we can look back in history in a way that certain orders have worked, but we now make and did then, I mean, it's not a new thing. We make moral judgments about which were good um, yep. in a way that is beyond the mere order. And I wonder if something similar is what you're pointing to with, with art, like that you can recognize the order in Montero or whatever you can, there's a, there's a <laughs> pattern of, of sounds that have a certain order. And in that sense it is quote unquote true and can be beautiful, but that actually that kind of beauty, um, Maybe like there there may be something that is beautiful and there and not moral in that sense,
1: yeah, I think this is really crucial. you know, there's a way of looking at all kinds of order, be they moral order or, you know, uh, visual order, rhythmic order, melodic order, as a kind of grammar. In other words, you can't have a language without A grammar that the rules of which words you can put where are the, the buckets into which you place meaning. You know, that's how language works. But once you have that grammar, it matters what you use it to say. And you can say inane things, you can say false things, you can say true things. But the grid that underlies it is what makes it possible even to know what's being said. And even moral order, I think, is kind of like that. You know, we we do set up these rules and we say, you know, if you want to, like, live uh, upright and fulfilled life, you probably shouldn't get drunk every night or whatever. But those are sort of like outlines or directions or grammatical rules. It's like if you want to get to Poughkeepsie, you can turn right at the signpost or you can kind of keep going and take it a different right further on, but you can't just turn left or drive off a cliff, you know? Um, and and art does, I think, function in much the same way. It It's obviously possible to write a good sonnet or a bad sonnet. It's possible to write a sonnet that breaks the rules in some interesting way. It's possible to write a sonnet that makes a show of following the rules and communicates in that direction. But unless that grid is there in the background, it's not possible to write a sonnet that has any meaning at all. Um, The Greek philosophers that wrote about this, uh, starting really with Aristotle, but leading especially into the Stoics, drew a very tight connection between formal structure and moral structure, moral order. And in fact, this maybe even goes back to Plato in the Republic when he's talking about the different modes and how you map out the notes along a scale and that kind of represents a certain cast of soul, right? So the Dorian mode is kind of arranged in a certain way that a soul also is when it is experiencing certain emotions. And just like a key in music, which is what modes essentially are, they're like an array of notes that you can use, that, key, that order isn't going to tell you what's in the song. It's not going to deliver the particular melody. But the melody is a motion through those different notes. And even when you play an accidental, that is even when you move on to a note that isn't in the scale, its meaning and its context is determined precisely by its relative position to all these other kind of formal elements. And so yeah, I think this is how, for example, we can recognize jazz as a good sort of innovation is that it it does take place against the backdrop of this structure and then break that structure in meaningful and interesting ways it is also how we can say of certain things well that wasn't strictly according to the rules but it was still a good thing to do like we all know the the case where somebody like winks and looks the other way, you know, the government rules sort of say that you have to have this stamp on your passport. And that's a good rule that is there to stop people from breaking into the country. But, you know, here's this Jew fleeing the Holocaust and that doesn't meet the requirements, but I'm just going to sort of go over there for a smoke. And when I come back, I, I don't want to see you here. You know, that, that, that kind of um, breaking of the moral rules and the moral order is recognizable to us because we understand that ultimately the rules and the structure and the form is kind of a backdrop and a grammar of the language and then once you become fluent in the language and those rules are like deeply internalized you can start to say things that that break out of that form or that play with it and that move beyond it um i i think that like when we start thinking about moral morality in art one of the chief things that art exists to do is to like foster that kind of communication and to reveal those those structures by using physical formal aesthetic structures as kind of analogs or stand-ins for the moral structure that obtains in the soul and conservatives typically will want the art instead to sort of dramatize or depict exactly what should happen when what's really going on and this is true actually i guess now of the left too i mean everybody kind of wants now the art that just shows what should be going on when really what art is there to do is to to reveal the nature of what does go on and it does that by kind of laying it out there in front of you, which it can't do without form, but which it doesn't do in the form, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that, that becomes really obvious, I think, in in specifically in narrative art, right? When you mm-hmm. think about movies or novels, um, where what bothers people, we used to spend all kinds of disbelief, right? I mean, flying people, right. like, um, you know, obviously, <laughs> like, the, the ways in which novels or stories or movies depart from the real is endless. Um, but one thing that seems to consistently bother us in, and what we, I think you get near universal sort of um, people don't like this almost universally, right? What, yeah, is exactly. when the, the internal um, character of people is not interacting in a realistic way with what's happening to them, right? Where yeah. um, where you get my my favorite example, which I actually brought up with with your not not your dad, Andrew Clavin, um, <laughs> is uh, so I I don't actually hate Ayn Rand as a, a novelist. Um, but to the extent that there's a very serious critique of her novels, I think that makes her not a great one. Um, it is this where she she sometimes has to make a choice between ideology and the way that human beings interact in a more like realistic way. So um, to me, the turning point in Atlas shrugged in this way is the way that Hank Reardon reacts to Dagny running off with John Gould. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. He basically says like, well, he's a better man. Like you have made the good logical decision. Right. We just know instinctively, like this is not how human beings behave uh, because to your point that you were making in your podcast, which I highly recommend everybody go and listen to, you know, <laughs> we aren't machines, right? We're, right. we're not, uh, the natural order isn't tantamount to a machine that continually, or the moral order is not tantamount to a machine that spits out a perfect and simple right answer um, in, in that way. And so we feel the falseness of this, like takes you out of the story because you're like, okay, this is, this is, unrealistic, even though it's a movie or a a book that might be about things that are unrealistic in a thousand other ways. That type of lack of realism or lack of contact with truth seems to particularly bother us.
1: Absolutely. We're totally comfortable with the idea that Harry Potter's wand can defy the laws of gravity. We're totally uncomfortable with the idea that Harry Potter's relationship with Hermione defies the rules of attraction, right? That's like what kind of or that that's how the um, game sort of works is you can set up whatever material fact rules you want in your universe but once you've created those rules your characters are going to operate and move within them as human beings and you know this is something that jk rowling herself has sort of said i think that she's not super happy at having made i guess ron and hermione end up with each other because she was basically, she herself felt like Ginny. And so she was imposing kind of her own wish fulfillment onto Ginny by, by ending her up with Harry. I will just say in, in moderate, shocking myself, it, it, finding myself defending Ayn Rand just, just a little bit. Apparently this is something that actually happened to one of, uh, Wagner's Lovers that Wagner like stole some guy's wife, and he was like, "This man is so great that I do not blame you." You know, like go and. But th- this was Wagner only. Like you know, there was sort of a it was sort of a distinctive, uh, you know, unique to him. But you're absolutely right. Like in general, that's we not. No,
0: that's not how. No, but we know we know that's not how he he really felt. Right, as in other right. words, I can imagine somebody saying that and even acting in accordance with it but we know like the way that Ayn Rand writes it it's 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 springing from Reardon's head Mm. which is much more hard to believe than somebody playing off as for whatever reason anyway this is you know we don't want to go too far a few no 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 but like we have this implicit
1: BS detector right that does tell us like even if you say that I know it's not how you feel because like people don't end up feeling that way and Yeah, I I suspect, I mean, Aristotle talks about plot as an outgrowth of character. He says that poetry is more philosophical than history, precisely because it's not about what happens to have occurred, but about what's plausible, what would occur. And that's still, I think, how we relate to plots and to plot holes is it's about who these people are, how how they relate. And Again, as Aristotle says, like the objects of imitation are men in action. We are interested in people and what they do and what they're like.
0: <laughs> I'm not going to cause a, a controversy once again by by pointing out that uh, the the movie about human trafficking, which I've already forgotten the name of, I thought. Failed that standard over and over and over again, and I was. Really oh, the sound of freedom! I, I will admit, sound I've never freedom. seen it
1: actually, so I can't. Uh, yeah,
0: well, I I did not recommend the people. So people got very mad at me for saying that, but mm. for that reason, that like the the character behavior, um, you didn't even see them struggling with certain things that, like, um, you ought to see. For example, the main character struggle between his duties to his own family. And like risking his life halfway across the world, which is not to say—I mean, apparently in real life he did go and do it, but like he didn't struggle with it at all—and I found mm. it very one-dimensional in that way. But anyway, I don't want to rehash um, the the Twitter mob coming after, <laughs> not liking sound of freedom. Anyway, um, let's let's move to the topic of art versus artist, uh, which is another one of these sort of perennial. And once again, I feel obligated to say neither one of us is in the position of, of you know, sort of hunting down the transgressions of artists and then banning all of their art. Um, I think J.K. Rowling is a good example of this, right? Or like it's, it's not acceptable to read Harry Potter, which is funny because it's become the Bible of liberal millennials. And then... <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and th- their their sort of ideology went in the other direction. I like Harry Potter, but not that much. You know, I don't.
1: Right, right, right.
0: Constantly reference it as the moral fulcrum of the universe. Um, but in any case, right? They obviously like uh, because of J.K. Rowling's views about men and women being different. Uh, there, there was this huge push to try to like, you know. Um, to, to ban from people who previously loved her series, like to, to try to, to take it out, to like not buy it, to boycott it, all of this stuff. And that's just one example of many the left finds all of these sort of imaginary transgressions, um, or even real ones. Right. So the, the, um, the release bothered me very much that, um, Louis CK actually, uh, made an incredible movie about me too and about like sex relations.
1: Mm. Um,
0: which was, and it's called Call, I can't, now I can't even remember the name. I'm so bad these days with like instant mm-hmm. recall. But anyway, um, it, it was nixed. I got a chance to see it kind of black market copy, but it, mm-hmm. it, it got pulled, but it never was released because of what he had done in his personal life um, and he, in his cancellation. Same thing, Woody Allen, the, the um, you know, there, there's endless numbers of examples of people like this in Hollywood, Harvey Weinstein, right? Um. So I'm t- completely not in favor of that, right, um, of right. sort of hunting down these transgressions. The more interesting question to me, because I, again, I feel like the right's answer has been a little bit too simplistic in saying, well, it doesn't matter what's, what the artist does in his life. Yeah. You know, the art is what we should judge. But that's like pretending that the art and the artist are totally like separable things, right? Or the art comes from something in right. the artist, of some, something of who he is. Um, and so what are we to make of art that comes from um, something that we, th- we think ought to be morally condemned by society? And the, the, the um, example I always use here is Andrew Wythe, um, the painter, has this series of paintings where they were about his affair with a much younger neighbor, um and they're clearly like sensual beautiful paintings of this woman it's very clear that his like inappropriate love for this girl is what is the um is the inspiration for these beautiful paintings right it's a direct one to one it's it springs from an immoral impulse on his part right mm, yeah um and yet he's created this beautiful series of paintings and again obviously i'm not saying we should like Burn these paintings, or not display them, or something like that. But um, it seems simplistic to me to say, like, oh, we can wholly separate art and artists, or like the art the artists can behave badly, but like the art is beautiful and has nothing to do with that.
1: Right. I mean, conservatives love to make that claim when they're reacting against some cancel mob, like the one that came for J.K. Rowling. But then they kind of tend to implicitly walk that back when some lefty is lecturing them or making art about you know, how Stacey Abrams should be president of planet Earth. Like, we love to point out that, oh, you know, these, these Hollywood actors are all sort of moral degenerates. And so what do they know about what we should do with the climate and whatever. So I think you're right, like, we all sort of implicitly understand that the things we see and experience come out of people, people make them. And so the world that they reflect at us, Uh, is in some sense the world as seen through a certain set of human eyes and what's really i think remarkable about truly great art is its ability so to at least you know uh disguise that individual perspective or or even maybe to transcend it that it can piss off every possible political group at different times so you mentioned jk rowling like today she's the hate object of the gender maximalist left like you and i are both old enough to remember when she was the hate object of the christian right like she has been so detested in so many different ways and to the extent that her books have been sort of candidates for revision or censorship and whatever and she herself kind of emerges throughout that story as a consistent personage with a point of view who's simply being honest right who's describing things the way they are um the other person that comes to mind to compare i guess great things with small a little bit is is dostoevsky who is now beloved of conservatives and who i think is rightly understood as representing a perspective that would become very important for conservatives namely the the defense of faith against kind of proto-socialistic materialism but At the same time, there's all sorts of stuff in Dostoevsky that conservatives would not get behind, all sorts of economic views, all sorts of, um, you know, personal stuff in his life that was obviously a huge problem, the gambling, the drinking, whatever, whatever. Um, And so, yeah, there is, you know, people are these kind of messy objects or or they're these messy entities. And as artists, what they do is less to, to make this or that argument, but to pour forth the world as it appears to their souls and i i suspect that what really counts in in art rather than in like our personal judgments of the individual is honesty is a certain degree of uh forthrightness and and um, frankness which is extremely painful for anybody and is going to reveal ugly aspects of anybody's character even an upstanding and apparently quite lovely person like jk rowling like you're, you're always going to be putting everything about yourself on display in your art even if it's disguised in all these all these fictional ways so i i suspect that like when you talk about for example kind of ugly human desires represented in this way that gives rise to sort of beautiful art i think like you know aristotle says that we delight to see accurate representations even of dead bodies and grotesque fish and and this is because we have a certain inherent pleasure in seeing the world represented or recreated in this in this mimetic way and that is a slightly different question than whether we find the art itself ultimately like morally successful and whether we find the person morally culpable or laudable or whatever what we're really i think reacting to when we find when we feel sort of betrayed by an artist is is a degree of insincerity that like there was this ugliness in you that you you know rep but you represented yourself somehow as as virtuous or lovely um you know my one of my father's big heroes no relation is uh is Oh, gosh, uh, I'm going to forget the the why is there air guy, uh, the Cosby show, right? That is is um David Cosby, who then terribly let him down with all of the sex scandal stuff. And, you know, does that mean that his comedy routines aren't great? Does it mean that his like art isn't uh, worthwhile in some instances? No, I, I don't think it does. But it does make like the Cosby show feel tainted now because that work in particular represents itself as having a particular relationship to the, the its point of origin and the falsehood and the dishonesty of that is just really, I think offensive and artistically offensive. And and I don't think it's you know wrong or censorious to say so.
0: Yeah. I think you've really hit on something there. Maybe, I mean, for sure, Dostoevsky is painfully honest. Um, you know, notes from underground, from underground is like the most uh, self-revelatory, like horrible um, thing to read, and that's that's in many ways which makes it great, right? Uh, but I guess my follow-up question then would be: when you talk about the grotesque, or even something like notes from the underground, where it's deep in the psyche of the underground man, of of somebody who is. Dishonest, petty, resentful, like above all, spiteful and resentful, right? Um, Mm. Do we, with that mimetic desire to see the grotesque and even to see in others maybe some of the grotesque that we recognize in ourselves, right? Um, Is there a danger in marinating in that? Because when I think about that, I think about my father's favorite painter, for example, Otto Otto Dix, Mm. um, who depicted soldiers coming home from World War One in some way, accurately as grotesques, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder how much, uh, like, I I wonder if we become worse people, if there is something, and obviously, like, I don't, I'm the last person to sort of uh, get behind the idea that all art has to be like sort of rainbows and unicorns, Mm -hmm. and like, we should only be feasting our eyes Mm -hmm. on on the, uh, you know, perfect morality and, and beauty and golden locks or whatever. Um, but I do wonder, especially with the rise of the anti-hero, like to a point of cliche, you know, at what point is marinating in the, in evil and grotesque, even if it's even well done, in other words, even done with a, a kind of honesty that you attribute by the way, to, um, portrait of Dorian Gray, that does mm-hmm. actually show some of the effects of corruption and degenerate living and so on. Um, even with that honesty, is there a point where we actually, if if the line between good and evil runs through all of our hearts, hmm. marinating ourselves in this give us an excuse to be worse rather than better, even if we can ever be perfect?
1: Well, I think you've put your finger on a major element of Plato's critique of the poets, certainly. You know, there's a lot in the Republic about poetry, some of it facially at least contradictory although i think ultimately perhaps there's an there's an inner consistency but one thing that i think is really clear whatever you're reading of that work is that plato socrates is really worried about what's going to happen to artists and performers and indeed the young men of athens who not only acknowledge or portray or discuss sort of low-lifes and disreputable characters, but who embody them and who take on their persona. He has a real concern about, you know, first-person speakers in, for example, Homeric poetry versus, like, the diegetic, you know, this happens, then that happens. Um, and his reason, I think, is very much to do with that, that sense of wallowing that you described, you know, just because there are a range of different aspects of human life and ugly things that we feel and think and beautiful things that we feel and think, and they're all part of us and they're all in there doesn't actually mean that like dwelling on the most contorted and ugly parts of us is necessarily good for our moral or spiritual health. And there are people that make these judgments. I know specifically on what weaknesses they have, you know, it's like, I'm not against Game of Thrones existing or there being sex in it, but I don't wanna watch it because I know that I personally am sort of already prone to sexual excess. And so I I just don't wanna like scratch that itch or aggravate that demon in me. And I think that at least betrays a real moral seriousness about what art can do. And, and one thing art very much can do is It will prompt in us what you called that mimetic response, that kind of mirror impulse to, you know, feel as if to identify with the characters that we see on screen. And that would be one good reason why, like, you know, art isn't just this sort of totally morally neutral thing, but actually does generate and produce more of what it portrays. All of that having been said, I will return for a moment to your criticism of Sound of Freedom, actually, less to, you know, Analyze that movie specifically, but to note that it's the problem isn't kind of a, a, um, a lack of or the problem isn't that that movie displays virtue, right? Your problem with it is that it displays virtue without a full sense of the humanity behind it. And I think that's in some way true also in reverse of a lot of these bad boy or or anti-hero stories, is that they're so cynical about humanity and about the world generally that they don't give get across a clear or full picture of who and what we are and what we're capable of. And one thing that really struck me when I went back recently to the kind of Arthurian legends and the knightly romances is that. Although those are, in some sense, idealist works, that is, they have an ideal about what we ought to be that is uncompromising and absolute, almost the entire plot and story is driven by our inadequacy to meet that ideal and the distance between humanity as we actually are and humanity as we long to be and believe we can be. And I think that if if you're going to be really honest about human life you know, we associate honesty with evil and ugliness, right? We think that you're not really being forthright and honest unless you're telling the worst possible story about the smallest and most twisted part of yourself. But this is to me really a kind of Freudian excess that teaches us that what we hide is what's most true about us. When actually, it's also true that wherever there are human beings, there are ideals and there are aspirations. And if you don't tell a story that includes some sense of the good even if only by its absence even if only by you know acknowledging that the characters fall short then i th- i think you've also sort of left out a major a major part of the picture um so i guess i would say that you know we each have our own individual relationships to art that are distinct and might actually make us want to avoid certain things more than others and i don't think there's anything wrong with that but when it comes to the question of like what kind of art do we want to see and make in the world i think you know you can say and depict almost any reality about us as long as it takes place within a context that acknowledges also that you know that the the worst things about us are not the end of the story about us and even if we fail to live up to our ideals like those ideals are also real things if only as part of the, the human story.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a really good way of, of balancing those two things. Uh, I, Cause you're right. I mean, I obviously I don't like the sound of freedom sort of um, <laughs> hollow virtue because it doesn't seem real or, and, and consequently doesn't seem impressive either to mm. me, like um, because it, it depicts something that's so, uh, so obvious, like th- that, it almost comes off as right like sort of a type of righteousness that isn't or self righteousness that isn't um, actually particularly admirable but um look i'm i'm i like your point about freud i'm a big fan of repression i, mm, <laughs> I <yes. think laughs> repression is a, a sort of lost uh, virtue <laughs> of, yep. of western civilization i mean i think that we it's good to have a healthy fear of yourself and your impulses right um as opposed to uh imagining that being free to be you and me will be uh, some kind of, of glorious, uh, glorious thing. Too often, if you let human beings be who they really are, that's uh, not a version of themselves that anyone else would like, and probably not even they would like at the end of the day. But um, I, I want to get to one more topic before I let you go, and that's how society should deal with some of these tensions that we've been talking about. Right, and what is the role of boundaries? Um, in art because we talked about the, the sort of, um, that you need a grammar, you need some kind of structure and order, even if you're going to then play with it. Um, Mm -hmm. and it seems like part of the problem, I'm not one of those people or conservatives who hates modern art. I mean, I think there is good modern art, but I do think it suffers more often than not suffers from this total lack of structure, even Mm -hmm. to push against, even to subvert. Um, and consequently it really can't come up with anything new it seems like like you're still I don't really see how modern art has advanced from the the you know found object putting a toilet in the, <laughs> in the art yeah. you know which when when it was done first actually was making a point like a, a cognizable point right. whereas continuing to do that for another 3 decades no longer has that effect because precisely because there's no structure to subvert um i i guess i wonder what what is the role of both informal boundaries in terms of, let's say, privately policed boundaries um, and the difference between sort of the mainstream and the counterculture in the Pollyon sense. And then also actual, actual societal impositions um, saying, you know, this far, but no further.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I was thinking when I knew we were going to have this conversation about the kind of conservative meme that has arisen in some circles about reviving the Hayes office, you know, this like bygone code of what you can and can't show in movies. And I was thinking about that because I really understand the impulse to say, obviously, taking all of the guardrails off did not succeed ethically. But maybe even more to the point, it wasn't it wasn't obviously an aesthetic or artistic good. In other words, many of the movies that were made under those restrictions about what what could and couldn't be shown were some of the greatest movies in American history, because we know that restrictions force creativity, and we know that things like the sonnet form, you know, demand call the best out of artists and all that stuff. So, I get the impulse to say like we should bring back a new list of rules for what you can and can't show. But my problem with it is that when you actually think about what the rules are or what they any set of rules that they could be, they they start to get really ridiculous and pharisaical because you know in in the the hayes code for example this thing about like if you are you know, if you have two characters in a bed, one of them has to have like one foot on the ground. And so you get these like weird shots of like people in these different contorted positions so that you can sort of convey that they're sleeping together without really showing it or whatever. And the reason that these rules all end up really ridiculous is because when you explicitly articulate particular things that you can and can't show, you necessarily, as in all forms of law, have to deal with literal readings and particular instances you have to say like this and not that and and that and not this and one reason why i think paul says that the letter of the law killeth but the spirit giveth life is because of this thing that we've been talking about that rules and structure are like a kind of grammar or a, or a form and they're not there for themselves that that is they're not there because the things that they prescribe are literally good, but because they make possible a whole spiritual realm of goods that is kind of infinite and and amorphous and and extensive. And so I one thing that I've been playing with a lot lately on the show is this ancient hermeneutic system of different ways of reading scripture specifically, but I think books generally, that lays out Three kind of major ways of of reading a text. You've got the the literal reading, which is like, what is the author actually saying about this or that? You've got the moral reading, which is what are the lessons that we should draw from it. But then crucially, you've got the analogical or the allegorical reading, or we might even say the metaphorical reading of like, okay, the author's telling you this, but what does it symbolize or what's kind of being uh, you know what's what is this an emblem of that that, that is behind the story? And most of the time, I think, when we start to ask the questions that we're talking about now, like, where should our rules be? We are thinking either in purely literal terms. That is, the story should just be a literal whatever happens, happens. It's just a art for art's sake. This simply exists. Or in this directly moral term, that is, like, this happens in the story. It's bad to do that sort of thing. And so the story is immoral and we're connecting this like literal reading of the story with like a literally moral set of ideas that we have about what should happen in the world. And I th- think the problem with that is that it flattens out this like crucial third term where like all storytelling happens and that is the metaphorical and the analogical and the, and the non-literal. And what we're really into judging is like what sort of metaphorical ideas or spiritual ideas or non-material ideas are being gotten across in this work and what kind of moral insights can we derive from that so obviously i think you can make rules in any healthy society about what kids can see what can be shown and displayed in public you know what's obscene to just plaster over the walls i think it's ridiculous that we've gotten into this weird like late 20th century. Supreme Court built environment where we can't make any laws along those lines. I think it's it's quite plain that, for example, using obscene language simply for the sake of it in public, in full view of children is like wrong. But the tougher question, which is about like, what do we do with James Joyce's Ulysses or how do we, you know, in the appropriate in the appropriate context, what should be allowed to be shown? Like. I don't think you're ever really going to be able to make a set of specific, a, a list of things that you can and can't accept in a work of art. The best you can do is I think direct people in your education and in your, you know, sort of literary criticism and the whole culture that surrounds the consumption and the creation of, of works of art to direct people toward that middle space where the bare bones, literal facts of what's going on in the story are communicating something beyond themselves. And that thing that they're communicating beyond themselves, whether it's about the ethics of murder or about the relationship between man and wife or whatever, that thing is subject to moral judgment and that there's no getting away from judging that spiritual content with some sort of set of moral notions and ideas and then that's a valid axis of criticism even if it's never going to end you up with do show this don't show that it's still an essential part i think of even among adults even in the proper context judging whether a work of art is good or bad
0: yeah, I mean I'm reminded of the the words of the Supreme Court definition of obscenity, right? Utterly without redeeming social importance, um, mm. which they applied with no set of consistent no sense of consistency, right? As you as you mentioned, Ulysses, Lady Shatterley both come under this um in, in the 60s. But I mean, one can imagine something like Hitchcock's the rope coming under it as well, right? it it, it um because of the moral dimension that you're, you're talking about. Um, it, it just, it has not been, this is also my position. I mean, I, I don't theoretically, I actually don't have, I mean, I I don't agree with the series of sixties decisions that essentially shrank obscenity to child porn (laughs) and nothing else. Um, I don't think that our constitution really, um, in any originalist understanding protects pornography, for example. Um, that being said, the specific decisions that you go through and you the, the ones that made it up to the, the court, the Supreme Court, are obviously a small percentage of them. If you go to down to the state courts for most of this was adjudicated in the 50s, in the 60s, in the early 70s, um, it's really hard to pull a um, a standard beyond, you know it when you see it, and it turns out the people don't. Um, right. And of course, then there's the subversion of it. Even once you put it, you say it like you put in boundaries and Artists have to think creatively, in this case, not artists, but pornographers, right? It, you would have these long pornographic films, but they would have some like a sensible social commentary, like they would read, right. uh, you read Ulysses during <laughs> porno, right? <laughs> um, in the middle, like they have a break, and they would read, and, and right. like, what does the court do with that, right? Um, and it's it just in practice, it, it seems like, because I was even in favor, and I'm, I'm just, I guess I've been the small C conservative side of what has been a discussion rather than a debate. But um, I found myself on the liberal side when conservatives were talking about banning cuties, for example, Mm. Um, which is about seemed to me to be an actual genuine attempt to be on the other side of that line where it was a genuine attempt to describe the sexualization of children. I didn't think it succeeded because I don't, I just didn't think it was very good. Um, But it was, clear to me that the artist was trying, the director was trying to describe a situation that happens and not actually celebrating it. It was more the the Netflix, um, what do you it, like the, the preview? Where yeah, the promo it, materials like, were like, all just... Salaciously, incredible. like, oh yeah, like, you know, come see this 11-year-old girls, like dressing right. provocatively and, and behaving sexually, right? Um, but I actually felt like the movie itself was again, I didn't think it was particularly good, but I I wouldn't want it banned in the sense that it it was an an attempt to discuss something to all the points we've been making that was true, ugly, but true about, you know, what it was like to be an 11 year old girl in the UK or whatever. Right. So um, in any case, like, yeah, I've never found, never found the right set of words of redeeming social importance that would like square a lot of those circles. But I do think that having the boundaries is what it's almost what is lacking in a certain fields of art and now that we are reimposing we I mean we let's be, let's be honest you you have you have a haze code it's how many
1: mm.
0: black hispanic and gay people have to show up in every single <laughs>
1: in yeah. every
0: single yeah, hollywood yeah. movie right or what's the one with women it's like uh, there's a test a name for a test Oh, the
1: Bechtel test. Yeah.
0: Bechtel test. You know, women have to have X percentage of the dialogue in a movie, right? How, what right. is that other than, but I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that, that having nothing is actually the, the, the best response. I mean, nothing, having nothing is what ends up to, to loop us back is with four minutes and 33 seconds of silence as a concert pianist.
1: Right. Right. Well, I mean, this is why when people say, let's have the haze code back, my feeling is, do you really want the people currently in charge making rules about what you can can't show? because as you rightly say, they already are. Like that is either formally or informally, a lot of that is already in place. And it's just as absurd and ridiculous as saying you have to have one foot on the floor. and and really for some of the same reasons. like the the woke left, it has a thing that they want to convey. It has an idea about the world. And you and I don't agree with that idea, but it's an idea to do with like, you know, racial justice and sexual politics and all of this stuff. And the only rules that they can make about it are not like you have to, por- how can you make a rule that says like you have to portray equity, right? You can't. You can only say you have to have five you know, Pacific Islanders in your movie or something. And 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 those kind of literalisms really fall short for the same reason that it's kind of impossible to write a good court decision about this stuff. Because like, th- it just speaks to the unsuitability, I think, of of the law in both the big and the small sense to really get at the heart of the issues that need addressing here. And I know that it's like, unpopular and squishy to say these are cultural matters, they need cultural solutions, but they're fundamentally cultural matters that need cultural solutions. Like we're, we are talking about kind of raising up a populace that is able to make these distinctions, because if you don't do that, if you don't educate people well, you will have to, as you say, develop some system of laws, like that, that is going to sort of set into place one way or another. And I think it is fair to point out that every society has some system of laws, whether they acknowledge it or not, that it is about this, even if it's just like no child porn. Um, And I think we could probably, you and I both, find our way to a series of laws that was more robust than that, that we could both endorse. Um, All the same, I think that one reason why this has been a really interesting conversation is that no matter what series of laws you write, good or bad, you know, whether we would approve or not you are still going to end up with that sort of squishy space where it's a matter of taste, judgment, and proper and good reading, right? Well, good interpretation of, of art and of text. And the reason for that is that's what art is. That's where it lives. That's like where the human soul operates. And you're not going to squash that out by coming up with a perfect system. Like there's always going to be that remainder that it involves judgment, um, morality, and the things of the heart.
0: And, and uh, that's a great note to end. I will only uh, add that it, it, it I think, necessarily involves what you call the axis of critique that includes actually asserting some kind of normative moral substance to it. And I don't think there's a way around that in politics and perhaps not in art either. Um, I highly recommend that everyone read Spencer's book, um, not only about the West and, and the um, ways in which he applies ancient arguments to modern problems, I think truly... Uh, I hope you won't take it as an insult because I, I, in any other context, I would mean it as an insult, but it, it is truly the best self-help book <laughs> available. There are so many, uh, you know, not only bad, but like ridiculous and cheap and superficial self-help books that are all about uh, making, <laughs> raising your already too high esteem. Um, uh, I think Spencer has written something that really translates ancient wisdom to a lot of the, the moral and societal problems and also individual uh, problems that that we face uh, in 2023. So highly recommend his book and his podcast, Young Heretics, where he talks about art and morality, as well as uh, recalling back to the great Western canon and teaching us the education that that none of us, and and I think this generation or very few of us, uh, had the opportunity to really have uh, the real Western education. Um, is over at Spencer's podcast at Young Heretics, so you can find him there. Spencer, thank you so much for coming on High Noon.
1: Thank you, and as it was a delight, and I'll look forward to talking to you again on Young Heretics.
0: That's right. That's later this week. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.